0: I can't imagine what it was like to be living in the city of London in the year 1940. How terrifying it must have been to hear the sirens going off warning the British people that the German planes were on their way ready to drop bombs on their city. So every night the British people come running underground, running down to the subway stations, what the British people call the tube, the underground railroad. They come running down down underground to, to seek a place of shelter. This is in the early part of the early days of uh, World War II, where every night, I mean, just try to imagine this, every night for 57 nights in a row, more than 500 German planes came flying over the city of London, dropping more than 700 tons of bomb, destroying homes and stores and hospitals and churches and even dropping bombs on fucking... How do we put the pieces back together again? How do we... Carry on. How do we continue to survive? Well, one of them was this man running a grocery store, just a tiny store, didn't have much to work with, but he didn't want to lose his business. So he painted a sign and he hung it on the front door and the sign read, open as usual. He wanted all his friends and neighbors to know, hey, I'm still in business, I still got the store going, you keep shopping, I'll I'll, I'll supply you with whatever you need. But one night, one of those bombs dropped or landed right near his shop, and it just blew away, I mean, just blew away the front part of the building. So, it, I mean, the entire front wall of the building was just demolished, and so the man took several days trying to clean up the mess, but he decided, I'm going to keep the store going. So he painted a new sign, and the new sign read, More open than usual. <laughs> Haven't there been moments... Haven't there been moments in your life and mine when that's the sign that could have been hanging on your heart and mine? Because it feels like a bomb had been dropped in our life. There was a death in the family or there was a divorce or there was a loss of a job. And all of a sudden we realize life's not going to go back to normal. There's been this life-shattering event and we have no clue how we're going to begin to put the pieces back together again. I mean, deep down inside, we've always known this truth that I can't do life by myself. But now we know that truth in a much more devastating way. Now our heart is more open than usual, more open to the help that we need from other people and much more open to the help that we need from the Lord. Now that's the very point that the Bible's trying to make here in John chapter 16. The scripture we're going to study today. Who is it? Who is it that creates this opening in your heart and mind? Who is it that gives us this wake-up call where every day he reminds us, you're not made to do life by yourself. You need every day. You desperately need the help of the Lord. Well, the Bible tells us here in John chapter 16, this is a work of the Holy Spirit. Now, let me give you an example of this, because this is true of God. It's been, always been true of God from beginning to end. So here's an example of this. Genesis 16. 28. One night, it's the end of the day, Jacob's tired, sun's already gone down, so he lays down on the ground to go to sleep. And he has nothing, and the Bible tells us as he lays down on the ground, he has nothing but a rock, a stone to use as his pillow. So he lays down on the ground using that rock, and he goes to sleep. And while he's sleeping, he has a dream. And it's no ordinary dream. It is a dream given to him by God. And in this dream, Jacob sees a stairway, an enormous staircase that reaches all the way from the ground clear up to to heaven. And he sees angels going up and down the staircase. So the next morning when Jacob wakes up, I mean, he really wakes up. He didn't just wake up physically. He wakes up spiritually. His heart is all stirred up because he realizes that in that dream, God has been talking to him. So Jacob calls this place Bethel, which means the house of God. But there's no house here there's no building here i mean jacob he is out here in the middle of nowhere so why does he call this place bethel because jacob says i have been in the presence of the lord and i wasn't even aware of it and in that moment the bible tells us that jacob is overwhelmed with a feeling of fear now he's not afraid you know, that God's getting ready to clobber him or lower the boom in his life. Not that kind of a fear. It's more like what the Bible talks about elsewhere, the fear of the Lord. He is overwhelmed with a feeling of absolute awe and reverence for the Lord. Because in this dream, God's been talking to him and telling him about all the remarkable, incredible things that he's about to do in his life. And Jacob's thinking, me? You want to do this for me? Man, I, I don't deserve this. Why are, you being, why are you so willing to be so good to me when I've not been good to you? See, what's interesting about this moment is that night when Jacob lays down on the ground, he wasn't looking for God. But God was sure looking for him. See, at this point in his life, Jacob is running away from home. He's running away from all his problems, or at least trying to, the problems that he's created for himself. He's lied to his father. He's cheated his brother. He's taken things that don't belong to him. He is He's a criminal fleeing the scene of a crime. There's nothing good or decent in his heart. I mean, here he is at a point in his life where he'll do anything it takes to get, it, to get ahead, even if he has to rob from his own family. He'll do whatever it takes to make things better for himself. He's selfish, he's greedy, he's mean, he's rude. This man is a piece of scum. Why would God want to reveal himself to a man like this and reveal himself in such a special way? Well, the answer is found in that dream, in this staircase. That staircase that reaches all the way from the ground to heaven, that staircase is a picture of grace. You see, Jacob knows he cannot climb this staircase and lay hold of God. He's not good enough to go to heaven, and he knows that. But in the dream, he learns that God's willing to come down the staircase and bring heaven down to him. In fact, Genesis chapter 28, verse 13, Uh, When Jacob's having, it tells us that when Jacob's having this dream and he sees all the angels going up and down the staircase, where's God in the dream? Well, in some of our Bible translations, you get the impression that God is up above. He's on top. He's, He's above it all. But actually, in the Hebrew, it says, no, God is down at the bottom of the staircase. He's down there standing on the ground right next to where Jacob is. See, on this night when Jacob lays down to to go to sleep and he's using that rock as his pillow, that rock is right now, that rock is just like his heart. Jacob's heart is cold and hard. He's abandoned everything Everything that's good, decent, and pure in his life. But though Jacob has abandoned everything else, God hasn't abandoned him. Here, by the grace of God. And in that moment, he is moved to want to worship. Now, there are two lessons that I learned from this story. Number one, when the Bible tells us that Jacob laid down that night to go to sleep and he got that dream, the Bible tells us, he Genesis chapter 28, verse 11, it tells us Jacob was here in a certain place. That's the phrase that the Bible uses, a certain place, which is the Bible's way of saying, this place has no name, no identifying marks. He is out here in the middle of nowhere. There's nothing special about this spot. Now, what's fascinating is this, in the ancient world, people believed that if you're really going to meet God, have a meaningful encounter with him, you had to find God in a special location. You had to come to a temple or to a mountain, uh, some certain high place set aside as a sacred spot, and that's where you're going to encounter God. They have to come to a special location. But here is Moses writing the book of Genesis, and he says, no, the real God, the true God, he's not like that. Genesis chapter 28 Here is God taking the initiative. He doesn't wait for Jacob to come to him. He comes to him. And when God comes to Jacob, he comes to him to a place. There's nothing sacred or special about this spot. There's nothing religious here. There's nothing noteworthy here. I mean, Jacob's out here in the middle of nowhere. And that's where God shows up so that he can work in Jacob's life and just pour out his blessings upon him. Here's the second lesson I learned from that story. This is the first time in the book of Genesis that we ever hear Jacob actually talk to God. See, here's Jacob. He's a grown man. He's, he's lived for a number of years. He's grown up in this religious home. He has a father and mother, Isaac, Rebecca. Many times before, he's heard them praying. He's watched them worship the Lord. He's seen how God has answered those prayers in some remarkable ways, how he's been actively at work in their lives. But Jacob, he's not engaged. I mean, this man is like an atheist. Oh, he knows there is a God, but he doesn't act like it. He lives and acts like everything depends upon him. Until this night. This night, when in a stunning way, God comes to meet with him. And suddenly, Jacob's heart is open to the Lord. And open in a way like it has never been open before. Because this night... Jake has been deeply convicted by the grace that God has shown to him. Now, that's the work of conviction that is being described here in uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 16. So take a look at this with me. John, chapter 16, verses 8 through 11. Just take a, a a short amount of time here. It says, and when he comes, we're talking about the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the advocate, the helper, the one who comes alongside, the one who wants to get close to us so he, he can help us in special ways. And yet here we are talking about somebody that, that most of us are not very well acquainted with, the Holy Spirit. Who are we talking about? I mean, we read about the descriptions in the Bible about the Holy Spirit. He's the spirit of truth. He's the spirit of the Lord. He's the spirit of Christ. He's the spirit of God living in you. But we still wonder, but what does that mean? I mean, are we just describing a mood, a feeling, an attitude? You know, that boy, he just has a spirit of mischief about him. He's all the time getting himself into trouble. Or that young lady, she just always displays a spirit of kindness. I don't think I've ever met anyone nicer than that. Or boy, did you see the team, the way they played that game tonight. It was such a spirited performance. I mean, there was some kind of energy at work in those young men tonight that you don't normally see in those athletes. Is that what we're talking about when we're talking about the spirit? You know, the Jehovah's Witnesses, when they read their Bible, and it's a different Bible, But when the Jehovah's Witnesses read their Bible, they never capitalize that expression, the Holy Spirit. They always use lowercase letters because they think we're not talking about an actual person. We're just describing an attribute of God. You know, Acts chapter 2. The day of Pentecost, the day when the church is started. And, and the Bible tells us how the 12 apostles were filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, the Jehovah's Witnesses believe we're not talking about a, a person, an actual person who lived and worked inside of them. No, we're just describing an attribute of God, how that day God poured out a special measure of his divine strength. That day he gave those 12 apostles just an extra lift, a boost. A, he filled them with this supernatural energy. Is that really what the Bible means when it talks about the Holy Spirit? No. Holy Spirit is a person, a real person. He's part of this divine family. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The ones we know as Yahweh, Jesus, the Holy Spirit. He's a real person. When, when you read the Bible, you'll, you'll hear the Holy Spirit. He talks, he testifies, he, tra- he prays. I mean, he's got a mind with ideas and thoughts. He has a heart, a real heart. That's why the Bible tells us the Holy Spirit can be grieved and he can be offended and hurt because of what we say and do to him. We're talking about a real person. And, and he wants to work in a very personal way so that you can get close to him and you can allow him to get close to you. But not only is he a person, he, he is a person, but he's a special person. And that's why the Bible uses this designation. He is the Holy Spirit. That word holy means set apart, above and beyond. He is transcendent. He's not just a person. He is a divine person. Infinite in his power and wisdom. Unlimited in all that he's able to know and do. He is God with a a capital G. This is someone, the Holy Spirit, this is someone you never want to take for granted. Now, do I understand everything the Bible says about the Holy Spirit? No. But that should never keep me from every day trying to get better acquainted with who he is and how he wants to work in your life and mine. For example, you know, I don't know a thing about electricity. You'd never want to hire me to change the wiring in your house because I'll, dirt, I'll burn the place down and I'll get electrocuted in the process and I don't want to do that. <laughs> but, but so there's, there's a lot of things about electricity that I don't know, but that doesn't keep me from using a light switch And that doesn't keep me from changing the thermostat so I can open up the vents and cool things down or heat things up, depending on what kind of season I'm in. There's a lot of things that I don't know about electricity, but I know this. Here's something good, and here's something necessary, and here is something when you use in the proper way, man, it brings enormous benefits to my life and the life of my family. Well, so it is with the Holy Spirit. And one of the enormous benefits that the Holy Spirit brings about in your life and mine is this this work that it's talking about here, this work of conviction. So notice what it says. Verse 8 says, when he comes, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong. That expression, to prove, means to convict. He's going to let us know in convincing ways, hey, you're crossing boundaries. You're stepping into places where you shouldn't be. And he does this in three ways. He will convict us about our sin. You're missing the mark. He'll convict us about our lack of righteousness, how our righteousness does not measure up to the righteousness of God. And he'll convict us about judgment. Too many times we misjudge things. We jump to the wrong conclusions. We think things about Jesus that are just not true. So then he begins to elaborate on this. Verse 9, he says, he'll convict us in regards to uh, sin because people do not believe in Jesus. They don't take people, or Jesus seriously. They don't realize what it is that makes him unique and special and how he can do things for us that nobody else can. He'll convict us in regards to righteousness, our lack of righteousness, because Jesus is going to the Father. In other words, here was God vindicating all that Jesus was doing in his life and his ministry, and especially there at the cross and at the resurrection, showing the world in a convincing way That only Jesus can save us from our sins. Only Jesus can make things right for us. And then verse 11, he'll convict us in regards to judgment. Because the prince of this world, talking about Satan, now stands condemned. Again, because of what God did through Jesus there at the cross and at the resurrection, he was showing how Jesus defeated the evil one and all the forces of darkness. So now all authority in heaven and earth resides in him. He sits on the throne. He Calls the shots. Back in 1999, summer of 1999, there was this young man named Daniel. He came down to SeaWorld there in Orlando. Daniel Dukes. He seemed to be just an ordinary tourist, but he had something in mind that day, something he was planning to do that he shouldn't have. He waited till the end of the day when all the guests were supposed to leave SeaWorld. All the guests were ushered out of the park, but Daniel remained behind. He hid himself. He waited till the middle of the night. The park was empty, nobody else around. Middle of the night, he climbs a fence, and he jumps into a pool where they keep this whale, a killer whale. Nobody knows for sure what happened next. I mean, did the whale get spooked? Hey, who's this stranger swimming around in my swimming pool? I don't know who this is. Did the whale get scared? And then he attacked Daniel? We don't know. Or is it that the whale thought, hey, is this another toy to play with? You know, every once in a while, they'll just toss a toy, uh, toy in that pool, let, give the whale something to, to bite and grab and play around with, and thought maybe Daniel's just another one of those toys, and so he pulled him underneath and held him down so long that he couldn't breathe anymore, and he ended up drowning. We don't know for sure. All we know is this. The next day, they found the lifeless body that Daniel Dukes just draped over the back of that whale. What? was Daniel thinking? Why do you dry, try such a daring stuff? I mean, was he trying to do something risky because he could brag about it later to his friends, hey, you know what I did? We don't know. All we know is this, he climbed a fence and he entered an, an area where he shouldn't have been and he paid for it. How many of us have been doing some of those same kind of foolish things? Have you been climbing a fence on the computer screen? Checking out why websites that should be off limits for you as a Christian? You're entering into a world where God never wanted you to be. You have entered into a world called pornography. Or have you been crossing boundaries at work, flirting with another person who is not your spouse? And though you give excuses and say, hey, we're just talking yet you know there's this chemistry beginning to develop there's an affection growing in your heart an affection that rightfully only belongs to your spouse or have you been crossing boundaries with a prescription a pill only it's not a piece of medicine anymore it's just a pill you take because it makes you feel good or have you been crossing boundaries with a credit card and using it ways that you shouldn't have and now you're head over heels in debt i mean every one of us here we, we've been stepping into places where we're not supposed to be. And before you know it, that, that sin, it just grabs our heart and we get overwhelmed and we find ourselves just drowning, drowning in a sea of trouble and shame. But that's exactly why we need the help of God's Holy Spirit. And one of his works in your life and mine is this work of conviction. I mean, sometimes he may scare, scare us and, and shake us up and say, hey, get your act together. But I want you to know this when the Holy Spirit does his work of conviction, it's, it's more than just a wake-up call. It is always an invitation. It is a word of hope where every day the Holy Spirit in different ways is trying to pull and draw us to Jesus. I want to bring you to the one who can make things better for you. Do you remember how Jesus did this for Peter? Matthew chapter 14. One day Peter sees Jesus walking on the water. He is a star. I, I knew Jesus could do remarkable things, but he's walking on the water. He's astonished. He's amazed. And then Peter asks, "Well, Lord, can I try it too? And Jesus said, come. <laughs> so Peter climbs out of the boat. And for a moment, here's Peter doing this extraordinary thing. He's walking on the water. But it's just for a moment, because you know this. You've read this scripture. He took his eyes off Jesus. The Bible tells us he began to notice, instead of noticing Jesus, began to notice the wind and the waves and he begins to realize what am I thinking I can't do this and he starts to sink but here's the question did Jesus let him drown Uh -uh. in an instant just like God did with Jacob back there in Genesis chapter 28 in an instant or in your Bible it may say immediately Jesus is there at his side extending his hand and saving Peter's life Peter failed but Jesus didn't. And what Jesus did that day for Peter is exactly what Jesus is ready to do in your life and mine. It is a work of the Holy Spirit where every day the Holy Spirit is trying to convince us of this truth that Jesus can save us when nobody else can. Let's pray. God, open our hearts. Open our hearts to Jesus. Let us see the truth about him, that he is Lord and he is Savior. And God, use this moment to draw us near to him. And I pray for this in Jesus' name.